What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today is going to be a very special episode. I'm actually going to share with you all one of my favorite keynotes that I've ever given. This is from last year's 2023 Carroll Citizens for Racial Equity Conference, where I delivered a powerful keynote about the importance of faculty and staff well-being in maintaining diversity, equity, and inclusion work and improving the experiences and outcomes for students. And so if you're a school leader, if you're a teacher, even if you're a student and is engaged in equity and inclusion work, this keynote is just for you. Hope you all enjoy. And as you can see, I'm thinking about my mom's banana pudding right now, right? And, and, and I, love, I love the analogy of banana pudding because I don't know about y'all, but my favorite part of the banana pudding is the cookies. Like the vanilla wafers are like the best part. And now you can't have the banana pudding without like the actual pudding itself, right? And so if I draw the analogy between banana pudding and the way that I speak, the pudding is like the theory in the definitional work, right? I appreciate the young people providing definitions about the, you know, that kind of inform the work that they're doing. So I'm going to provide some definitions and some theoretical frameworks, but the cookies are the specific examples in the stories that really highlight the practicality um, uh, of some of the work that I'm doing. And so um, I hope you all to, you know, feel, feel free to, again, engage in any way that you see fit. And as an overview, I'm going to talk a little bit about myself and my journey and the work that I'm doing now at Georgetown University. I'm going to talk about the importance of wellness and relationships, which was, which was teed up so well by Dr. Watley at the beginning. I feel like builds on a lot of the principles uh, that she laid out for us. Um, I want to get into some practical items, again, the cookies that, that I'm really excited about. I'm going to have some specific advice for young people, especially on that last question about you know, what it actually looks like and what we can do in Carroll County. Um, and then we're going to open it up for about five to ten minutes of Q&A. Does that sound good to everybody? Yeah. Are we on board? All right, let's rock and roll. So a little bit about me. Like I said, I was born and raised in Baltimore, specifically Baltimore County. Y'all know I got love for the city as well. And I'm also a proud alum of McDaniel College, where I graduated with a, uh, a bachelor's degree in communication. And I did a ton of things at McDaniel, right? I played on the football team for two years. I was a student uh, peer mentor. I was a resident assistant. So I was very involved on campus. But I would say that my most transformative experiences at McDaniel were actually in the classroom. And specifically, when it comes to equity work, there were moments in my educational experience for example, I, I, I would sit in these breakout rooms and we would have discussions, uh, specifically in like my intercultural communication class, for example. And there were times where I would hear students say things like, I don't watch the news because it doesn't affect me. And just sit with that. And I, and I, and I was blown away by someone feeling so protected by their privilege that they didn't feel that it was necessary to look at the news and understand the experiences of others. Right, so I arrived to this work from those experiences as a student and being transformed by them in the classroom, and it leads me to my current work at the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, which in short is Georgetown Center for Teaching and Learning. So I engage a lot with faculty development. I help them design their courses around equity, around inclusion, around access. And through that experience, I'm more and more learning about the importance of relational, uh, uh, re relational priorities and also wellness in this work. And so I feel like it's always important to have our challenges in front of us and to name specifically what we are, what we are battling, what we are facing 
at our universities. And for, the, for those who don't know, Georgetown, it's a prestigious university. Um, it has a very low acceptance rate, but a very high graduation rate, right? So there's that elitism aspect of Georgetown. And so some of the challenges um, that we face here are uh, lack of inclusivity on our campus, right? So we found out through a cultural climate survey that was conducted in 2020 that 76% of white students feel like uh, they belong at Georgetown compared to just 43% of black students, right? And those kind of stratifications are had along several lines of identity. We also found that students experiencing extreme levels of stress from competitive and, and, and you know, an exclusive campus culture. Again, this competitiveness, this elitism, the fact that I have to be perfect because I'm at a school like Georgetown University. These are some of the things that we're facing. And through some of the work that I'm doing with faculty and in our courses, we're finding out that when students go to seek help, when students go to the counseling center, when students go to student health services, when students interact with health education services, when they're learning about the things that keep them well, only 15% of students report that counseling services address their needs sufficiently. And this is really important to pay attention to. One of the projects that I'm leading at Georgetown is called the Engelhardt Project for Connecting Life and Learning. And we're finding out the power of having students connect what they're learning inside of the classroom to their lives outside of the classroom. And I know we have a lot of social workers and mental health professionals in this room. One of the core models of this faculty development program is that we pair teachers and we pair teaching professors at Georgetown with counselors at the university, with career center professionals at the university, with the people that students are seeing on a daily basis. We invite them into the classroom to generate discussions about topics that center student well-being. So we've had physics professors, for example, uh, talk about sleep habits and how the science behind sleep is important to not only do from a mathematical standpoint, but to also live by, right? And we would invite uh, mental health counselors into this environment to have real conversations with students about, okay, how can I take you know, the biological topics and, and the physics topics that I'm learning and actually apply them to myself in order to maintain my level of wellness, right? And so we want to improve the relationships that students have with these professionals and acknowledge that learning doesn't just happen inside of the classroom, right? Like students are learning all around campus and we need to be able to value and invest in those learning experiences. And the number one thing that I've worked, I mean, the number one thing that I've learned in talking to faculty and doing this work is that mental wellness and equity work are inextricably linked. And I'm going to say that again for somebody in the back that might have missed it. Mental wellness and equity work are inextricably linked. And so we cannot be proponents of equity but also have a, quote, tough it up buttercup type of mindset when it comes to this work. And so what does it mean to take care of ourselves? What does it mean to be well? Why is it important within this context? First is to understand that wellness is not a nice to have. Wellness is not just the individual pleasantry. And when I talk about wellness, I'm not talking about going to the spa or posting about it on social media or even taking naps during the day. Like those are, those are things that contribute to wellness. But the importance of wellness, especially when we talk about building relationships with the people that we work with, with the people 
who we expect to see change from, we have to understand that our wellness allows us to have the emotional awareness and the emotional capacity to build those relationships. To talk about the affective and the emotional parts of our work that makes this stuff really difficult, right? And so we can't do that if we're always in the mode of numbing ourselves and really kind of adapting to busy work culture, you know, hyper-competitive work culture. We have to be radical in the sense of valuing our wellness, not just so that I could be well, not just so that I can be well, but when I check in on Gary, I could be well for Gary. When I check in on Dr. Watley and we have a meeting and we have a discussion about Dr. Watley's teaching, I'm not coming with the microaggression. I'm not coming with that. I'm coming from a perspective of wellness, right? And so we have to value our wellness in this work. We also have to view equity as excellence. And so what I like to tell faculty is, let your students know and be a model for your students so that they understand that in order to be a good lawyer, in order to be a good business person, in order to be a good entrepreneur, equity has to be at the center of that. Like teaching excellence isn't teaching excellence without equity in it, right? And so you can't be a good teacher, you can't be a good nurse practitioner unless you are centered in equity. And so much of this conversation, specifically in the academic context, is about um, this battle of flexibility and accountability, right? So then how can I make my course flexible? How can I make my work environment flexible and then still hold people accountable? Well, if you make things flexible, people can show up to the work in the way that works best for them. And then in most cases, they're usually motivated by you really prioritizing their humanity and allowing them to show up fully with the strengths and skills that they have. And so it's not a matter of making things easier for people just for the sake of it. It's putting people in a position and giving them the agency to say, okay, I'm setting up the environment so that you could be your best self. I'm setting up the environment so that I could hold you to a particular standard, right? And so we have to view equity as excellence in whatever work that we do, whether we're in the classroom, right? Whether we're in a clinical scenario, this is how we have to view equity. I love the work of uh, Bettina Love, and it was put beautifully uh, by Sarah Rob, who did some commentary. Uh, Sarah Rob, who did some commentary. Um, on one of her most recent books, We Want to Do More Than Survive. And Bettina Love says, quote, the educational survival complex is one in which students are left learning to merely survive in schools that mimic and reproduce the same inherently inequitable and oppressive structures of the larger society. And so when we have, thank you, so when we have this framing, we understand that intergenerational trauma doesn't just happen in the home. It happens in our schools. The intergenerational trauma is happening in our offices. It's happening in our meetings. And if we don't address it and if we don't see it as that, we can then reproduce the things that we've learned. And we have these discussions with faculty all the time when we talk about um, testing anxiety. And faculty think, for example, that since I had anxiety as a student, when I took tests and because there were only two exams in the entire semester and if I failed one of them, I failed the class, I'm gonna put my students in that exact same situation. And so we have to stop ourselves from reproducing the things 
that we know are not helping students and we know that aren't productive. And then I'm also inspired by the, world, by the words of Dr. Eddie Glaug Jr. I actually heard him speak these words live at the Wellbeing Summit in Spain last year. And he said, don't be selfish in the name of well-being. Again, it's not just an individual pleasantry. I'm trying to be well for others. So don't be selfish in the name of well-being. Fight for a better world. Do the work of being that inexhaustible voice and bring a new humanity into existence. This is what well-being looks like. It's not just about self-care in the individual. And we really have to tap into the affect of, again, the emotional aspects of this work that make it difficult. Because at the core of every microaggression, there's a feeling, there's an emotion attached to it. Whether that emotion is frustration, that emotion might be entitlement. This is my course. This is my content. This is my position. Right? So entitlement could come up out of that. It could be disbelief. It could be frustration. But then, on the other hand, in order to eliminate microaggressions, we have to be emboldened to bring the other emotions into our work. What brings me joy? Right? Like Dr. Watley said earlier that having like really intense conversation with people who perceive you know, hate or like try to project hate, like that's not her ministry, I'm all about the smoke. Like I, like, I love that. Like I love the, the excitement of really critically engaging with somebody that is in opposition to equity work is something that excites me. And I bring that strength to this work, and I understand that. And some people don't, and that's completely fine because, again, this is collaborative. We work in teams. Like, none of this stuff happens in isolation. And so you have to acknowledge, okay, what strengths do I bring to this? What brings me joy? What brings me happiness? What brings me curiosity in this work? And so we have to tap into the affective and be aware of our emotional compass. But in order to do that, you have to be, well, you have to have, again, embodied experiences in order to pay attention to the affective that informs the relationship building. And so I kind of draw it out here in this slide too. So we strive for this sense of holistic wellness. And you might be thinking, Jordan, what does this look like? I'm not a therapist. I don't know like the, the practical aspects of it. I'll get right into that in just a moment. But when we strive for holistic wellness, we build the emotional capacities for the relationships that changes views, that changes perspectives, that holds people accountable, that inspires people, that gives people examples. And that's why I love small group activities like the ones that we had earlier. And what I like to encourage is, is that speaking opportunities and, and speaking engagement like speaking engagements like the ones that I'm doing now are fantastic. But I'm really starting to lean into the importance of communities of practice so that we can learn about the lived experiences of those who are doing this work so they can talk about, okay, what does rejection look like when you submit that proposal for the program and it doesn't come back to you the way that you thought it would, right? Like, how do you sit with that disappointment? Like, what are the next steps in order to, in order to overcome that, in order to push this thing forward? And a lot of those things don't come out of just a speaker that's in front talking. It comes through, okay, what are you seeing in your classroom? You know, what are you seeing in your interactions with students? How are students doing? Like, how are they actually doing? And so we build the emotional capacity for relationships, and that allows us to fully support 
uh, the equity initiatives and the things that we want to see change. And I teed up a little bit about communities of practice. And for those who aren't familiar, communities of practice are environments and situations where practitioners in a particular field, it could be educators, it could be social workers, it could be lawyers. So anybody that has a shared and invested interest in the work that they do, talking about the intricacies of their lived experiences in detail. And the focus is more about the community that's created. So it's not just about the theory and about planning the thing and the next meeting. No, it's about the people that you're involved with. And there's a ton of research on how powerful communities of practice are. And I'm citing Pierco and others in 2016, and they say, quote, it is important to look at the community, uh, it is important to look at community development as an emergent and continuous process where people think together regularly about real life problems that contrast with deliberately trying to, quote, set up that conversation. And so a lot of the com this community building that we do, we can't force that, right? Like when you approach somebody about you know, specific racial challenges in your context, don't open up and say, okay, talk to me about racism in this particular situation. You frame it more from the human-centered pr perspective. So like, what challenges do you see in your school? What are you facing? How are you doing? How are your colleagues feeling? You know, what are you hearing? What kind of conversations are being had around you that you're observing? You know, what do you have more questions about? Again, centering the human experience and the embodied experiences that we have as practitioners in this work. Is this resonating with everybody in this room? Can I get some head nods if this is resonating? Okay, awesome, awesome. So here's the cookies part. Here are like the, the practical things and the storytelling that I think could really bring some of this to life. And the first one is decentering yourself. And when it comes to decentering yourself, I like to say, I am not the problem, but I contribute to the solution to the problem. Again, I am not the problem, but I contribute to the solution of the problem. And in a moment of transparency, I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome. As somebody who's 23 years old, that's really young, you know, doing this work, um, you know, I, I realized that as a first generation college student, as a black male college student, as a master's degree student who was also working full time, who's also teaching a course, who's also doing all of these, you know, fantastic things, there is, there are systems that are in place to burn me out intentionally to take every resource, every reproducible thing out of me and to not invest anything back into me. And so I have to refuse those things. I have to decenter myself and say, when I'm exhausted at work, I'm not the problem. Right? When I'm exhausted at work, it's not just me. It's not just me going through this. You know, when I make a mistake at work, I'm a human being. I'm allowed to do that. I can't chastise myself to do that. And people say that I'm a really confident speaker. I get really nervous before presentations. And you imagine what the, what the role of decentering does and, and what it does for speakers is that, well, for me in particular, is that when I decenter myself and when I say, one, the speech is not about me, I don't even want y'all to remember me. I want you to re remember the words that are coming out of my mouth. So the speech is not about me, one. And then two, as Dr. Watley pointed to earlier, there are scholars and activists and my brothers and sisters behind me who have done the work before me 
So I'm taking myself out of it and I'm putting you as the priority. I'm sharing a message with you. I want you to learn something. I'm throwing a whole bunch of tools at you and you could be like, oh, I like that tool. I'm going to grab that. Oh, I see a particular situation where that might be helpful in my work. I'm going to grab that. Oh, another tool's coming? Okay, let me try to grab that too. And so it's not about me. It's about the people that I'm trying to help and working toward a solution. And so we have to work to try to decenter ourselves in times of discomfort, in times of frustration, in times of fear and anxiety. And we have to work toward the systems that we know are creating um, emotional circumstances that are unproductive and counterintuitive to equity, to wellness, to the work that we're trying to do. And so I credit Tina Comp and um, the work of black feminists for, um, for refusal practice. And I think being able to refuse things, knowing what you can say no to, and what will and what in the things that again are counterproductive to equity work, to wellness, identifying those things are really important. And so there are really three main points to refusal practice that I want to highlight here. It is the rejection of the status quo as livable. It is the rejection of the status quo as livable. And in Western society in, partic in particular, there is heroism in surviving, in, in surviving, right? There is a heroic aspect of surviving a particular situation or a particular lifestyle that we value in this country. We fetishize surviving. But when you, again, center yourself, when you're, when you're self-centered, and you say, oh, I'm able to survive this, this, so I expect others to do so, you're completely discrediting and discounting everybody who's not surviving. So we have to step outside of self and say, okay, I'm able to survive this opportunity, but how can I make things better for those who aren't surviving right now? Those who aren't portrayed in the media, those who aren't showing up in the news, who, who aren't showing up in the news cycle, right? Again, so we have to reject the status quo as something that's livable, we have to imagine the possibility of living otherwise. Again, there are cultures outside of our own that value wellness, that value human-centered design, and we should look to those cultures, seek to learn more about those cultures to think about worlds that are more livable. And then lastly, we have to view negation and denial as a generative and creative source. Again, so what are you going to say no to, and then what do you do as a result? So what happens when I say no to the standard nine to five? What happens when I'm able to get up and take a walk in the sun for 30 minutes and take my time and eat my lunch without trying to answer emails at the same time and have an embodied experience? What am I able to do as a result of that? And so again, what are we going to refuse? And I want you to really think about that. What can I refuse? What are the small things that I can start to refuse in my daily life to again prioritize my wellness not only for myself, but for the people that I'm trying to connect with and build relationships with. The number two thing that I have, again, building relationships. So what does this actually look like? I want us to understand this right here. Feel free to write this down. Feel free to take a picture of this. Whatever you need to do to remember this. And it's that equity work is a slow game of high intensity. So there are times that are going to be very intense. 
when we take care of ourselves and we start to feel things, oh, I've never felt that before in this extreme of a way. Yeah, that's what happens when you have embodied experiences. And we have to realize that this is a slow game of high intensity. Now, I was facilitating a student panel a couple of weeks ago at a, um, at a conference that I was at, and there was a question in the Q&A that came up from a faculty member that I could visibly tell the audience had like a clear issue with and a clear problem with. Um, and this question, the phrasing was off, it was very self-centered. Again, this is my course, what's wrong with my students? And the first thing that I tried to communicate with my colleagues about and what I want to share with you about is that instead of saying, what's wrong with my students? What's wrong with this community? What's wrong with my colleagues? How about you say, what, is, what, what are the challenges? How can I help? How can I support you? Again, centering the human beings that are at, the, that are at the, uh, the crux of this work. Right, so he asks this really problematic question. Um, he takes up a lot of the space in the room. It's like this long, elaborate question about how his students aren't listening to him, how he's putting a whole bunch of you know, time and effort into his course and things like that. And again, that might be a little bit of entitlement. But at the end of the day, he came up to me and we had a 15-minute conversation about teaching and learning. Right, and it's the relational aspects of it. And so... Instead of having the response of, we don't, want those type of, we don't want those types of questions, you know, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable, obviously we don't want to put people in compromising situations, we don't want harm to be done, but when those opportunities present themselves, we, one, acknowledge the fact that the question was asked, that those, those feelings of entitlement were not bottled in, so then it's reproduced to when he actually like, sees the students in class, like the ability to ask this question in this environment, there, there, there's some value to that. And then secondly, I build the relationship so that he could come back. Because I want him to come back, I want him to learn, I want him to be in community, right? I want to be able to talk in his language that's particular to his field so that when he comes here, he can then learn our language and then we're both speaking the same language. And so that we're both singing the same song in unison. But we gotta get him in the door first. Right, like that might have been his very first workshop on inclusive teaching, I don't know what this individual is going through what he's experienced, but it's my job to try to learn and to try to understand that. Because believe it or not, just like students don't feel like they're heard, faculty also don't feel like they're heard. Social workers in a lot of environments don't feel like they're heard. All this work can get lonely. And if, as students, if we're expecting educators and faculty to listen to us, we have to be able to reciprocate that. We have to be able to ask those people about their experiences and really build those relationships so that he can come back to the community of practice, he can come back to the workshop, he can be able to try new things and then come to us when it doesn't work out the way he expected it. Like, oh man, like I really put a lot of effort into this inclusive teaching element, I thought it was gonna be transformational and the students fell asleep on it. Like it, it did not resonate. What are some things that I could do to make this better? Right, but that level of accountability is not built without the relationship. Does everybody get that in this room? Okay, awesome, awesome. And what does this look like in your work? Well, you gotta make time for it. Right, like this is time consuming. Again, it's a, a slow game of high intensity. And there are some people in this room that might be thinking, yeah, I'm not a therapist. Like, People are gonna start talking about their problems and like I'm gonna get anxious and I don't know what to do. I don't know the resources, like I'm gonna be scrambling. But, but when I look at the data that we, 
get back from our students because we put out um, a, a semesterly survey. So at the end of every semester, we send students a survey about their experiences in these courses, their experiences having these conversations with mental health counselors inside of the classroom, like what comes out of those experiences. And the most popular responses that we get from those assessments is that students care so much about the fact that it was even focused on, the fact that, it, that they were even able to talk about it in an educational setting. And so when we talk about creating equity and then being the change, we talk about working together, how about we just make time to hear each other, to acknowledge that that feeling is valid, and then to say that I'm thinking about you, to say that if you need anything, how can, again, how can I support you? If you find, if you think of a way that I could support you, please let me know, right? These are the resources that I know on hand. These are the resources that I know that are available to students. These are the resources that I know are available. Oh, I had a friend that was talking about BetterHelp the other day, and I know it's this online thing that helps people have you know, therapy-centered conversations. Is that something that you might be interested in? Is this applicable? Like, you don't have to be a, a, a therapist yourself and, again, center yourself in trying to solve that person's problem. And so we, when we get out of the frame of problem-solving on the spot, we can then start to hear people out without trying to rush to a solution without trying to put a Band-Aid on it immediately. And so take the extra five minutes to check in with your, with your people, like really check in, like how are you, how is your weekend? How are your kids doing? Right, like Jordan, I know you're taking a class, because I, I work full time and, and I'm in class part time. How's your class going? Right, so we gotta be able to check in with each other. Is that, can, can anybody, by a show of hands, can anybody do this immediately? Like say, is this something that we can all do at some point? Just make time for it? Okay, awesome, awesome. I'm glad that this is resonant. So item number three that I just wanted to cover real quick is this theory of institutional change. And the Engelhardt Project, I came into the project uh, about two years into my time at Georgetown, but this is a 20-year project that partners faculty and teaching professors at Georgetown with who we call campus resource professionals and the social workers, the career center individuals, those who work in student health services, to have those conversations about the meaning of student well-being inside of the classroom in correlation with what is actually being taught. Right? So we've been able to scale this program from working with just five faculty members in 2005 to now we have closer to 40 faculty members across Georgetown that are engaging in this type of um, you know, co-curricular experience with their students. And then I've also been at a lot of conferences where I've heard really powerful stuff about institutional change. And so I thought it might be helpful to kind of provide a loose framework for what this will look like. And again, this is in education, but I feel like a lot of the principles that I'm talking about today can be implemented in business. It can be implemented in law offices and, or, or whatever you, um, you know, end up doing in your work. And so we have to first empower practitioners, so the professional staff, and identify practitioner champions. So it was said earlier, what you're talking about, like the things that you're trying to propose, nine times out of 10, it's not something original. Like there's somebody on campus that's already doing that similar work. Or there's somebody um, in Baltimore that might be really, you know, putting social workers and their well-being at the center of their work. And so they're able to 
um, you know, be more impactful and be able to expand that way, like start with conversations with those people that are already doing the work. And that's really hard for us to do in academia because so much of it is siloed, right? So like business does their business thing and it's very special to business and we have, our, you know, business has their own school and their own curriculum and their own, 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 right? But when we start to look outside of that and again, start to learn about what other leaders are doing that are already doing similar work, we can all be on the same page. And I just left a conference last week and the keynote speaker, I mean, he killed it, crushed it, right? And he said something that really stuck with me. He said that it's important to preach to the choir, right? We do all this preaching to the choir, right? People like to say when we have conversations in rooms like this, people are preaching to the choir, but the choir needs practice. <laughs> so there are sometimes, yeah, and I can't take credit for that. I wish I could. And that was, that was good, right? But the, the choir needs practice so that we can not only all be singing the same song, but we're singing it in unison. And there's going to be different pitches. There's going to be different vocal ranges. Some people are going to have raspier voices than others. But we still need to practice so that we're understanding the song that we're singing, so that we understand the problems that we're facing. And so this is why relationship building is important, because we need to empower the people who are already doing this work so that they don't feel like they're overlooked. Right? And so then we have to learn from and with your constituents and design for them. Like the students teed up beautifully, have conversations with your students, have conversations with your constituents, allow them opportunity to provide feedback. We need to prototype, pilot, and assess. You might not be able to fund that big initiative that you've been dreaming about, that you've been reading research about, that you have all the evidence on, but how can you break that down into smaller problems that you could provide evidence-based results around? Right, so again, reframing those big problems and being able to uh, you know, design prototypes and analyze those things and assess those things and to really master your storytelling so that when you sit in front of leadership, you've got that, you've got that song, right? You're singing in tune when you sit down with leadership. Right? Number four is collaborate on storytelling. Again, making sure that the stories that you tell are actually resonant with people. And then through that, once you empower the practitioners, you have these champions that can speak in spaces where you currently aren't, right? You're able to learn from the people that you serve, so now you're inviting students into it, now you're inviting clients into it, you're inviting customers into that experience, and you're able to tell that story more fully and more consistently, then you're able to turn administrators into champions as well, right? So it's just something for us to think about, and I'm open to answering more questions in the Q&A part about what this looks like. And now I have some advice that I wanna share with um, some of the young DEI leaders in the room, specifically the students um, that just talked in any students that you might have in mind. And Dr. Watley and I have like very similar slides on this, but it's, a, it's, it's apply a both and approach to conversations. So what does it look like to apply both and conversations? So I have, I have a funny story. So, I, so for the Englehart Project, we have a student advisory council. Right, and so we work with uh, eight students that we meet with on a monthly basis, and we talk specifically about the challenges that students are facing. Like these are the students that are sitting in class next to their classmates, they're having conversations in the lunchroom. They are privy to the challenges that students are facing that we, the staff side, and the faculty might not be privy to, right? And we, and we recognize that and we value those voices. 
And we invited them to a faculty conversation earlier this year and the results were to make, it was such a beautiful flowing conversation about what it takes to provide a campus that actually prioritizes well-being, like what that would look like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. And the students were like, we need to do that every month. Like every single time the faculty are getting together, we need to be there and like that needs to be the thing. And I, was, and I said to the students, how would you feel if every time you sat down at the lunch table, a faculty member was there? How would that make you feel? They were like, I don't know about that. We might need to, <laughs> might need to, to, to reevaluate that. And so it's a both and approach. Again, we like to, we like to say, oh, it, is, it either needs to be a full holistic conversation and like everybody needs to be in it all the time, or the people who are marginalized need their own space and they need to talk and then that's the solution. But why not both? Like, why can't both be achieved? Why can't we create spaces and environments where faculty get to talk amongst themselves, build community amongst themselves, being able to be vulnerable with somebody that is more closely aligned to their experiences and might have a, a different understanding about teaching, and they have to have, you know, they get to have conversations with students. All right, and so when you're, when you're a student and you're thinking through these solutions, think from a yes and and a both and perspective and not try to, you know, draw like really hard lines between those two things. Another thing that I've learned in one-on-one -on -one consultations with faculty is that it's important to suggest things instead of requiring things. And as students, we get so passionate. We have so much energy and excitement about this stuff. And we slam our hands on the table like, this is what needs to be done. We've read about this for so long. We experienced it. Like, let's go. And then again, the faculty member is like, well, what about my experience? I'm just a faculty, like I'm just an adjunct. Like I get paid $3,000 to teach this course. Like it's not even my full-time job. My kids are hungry. I actually got to go in like 10 minutes. Like, like what's going on? And so it's important to value the knowledge that people are coming into those conversations with and build on that. And so instead of saying, you need to do this in your course, you can say things like, well, I was talking with this particular uh, faculty member in biology last week, and they did this really cool thing with their students. And from hearing about your course goals and what you want students to learn, I think that this might be helpful. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Have you seen anything like this in your classes before? Or have you considered maybe implementing this conversation? Because I think it really highlights the things that you already have in your curriculum. And then that's how that conversation gets going. And then it becomes a co-collaborative process. It becomes a co-designing process instead of just asking somebody to fulfill a requirement. And lastly, we got to have fun, y'all. Like, we've talked about how difficult and how draining and how emotional this work is. And I think a beautiful way is to make it futuristic. And I guess you could call this a futuristic slide. I don't know what it's doing right now, but um, this should say use speculative design in meetings. Hopefully my people are on Zoom are on Zoom are okay because I know that's a, that could be really confusing in an online platform too, but use speculative design in meetings. And so as students where you're talking about policy, where you're talking about the challenges that you're facing, ask questions like, what would it look like if our campus was a well-being campus? We're talking about all this change, but what do we want our campus to look like in 2025? 
What do we want to hear? What conversations would we hear as we walk by faculty, as we walk through campus? Like be vivid and specific about the things that you want to see in the future. What should students feel when they sit in their seat? What technology would students use in 2025 in order to promote a climate of inclusion and equity? What would those things look like? And, and, and it's beautiful to see the wheels start turning when students are ejected out of the present and are propelled into the future and get to be really creative and fun and dynamic and, and create things, right? And then tapping into that creative power. Again, what would students feel, think, and say? And then it's even fun to mention artifacts from the future. And so when you're walking through the library in 2028, what are you seeing on the walls? Right, if you had an artifact from 2040, what technology would you hold in your hand to make equity possible? And then you start to really think about, okay, what does this look like now? You can design backward by setting it in the future. And as I wrap up here, I have one last thing that I want to say to you all that we can open it up for a Q&A. Be well for you and for me. Because, y'all, we got a lot of work to do. My name is Jordan Davis. Thank you all for your time. Oh yeah, and since, since connections and relationships are so important, feel free to reach out to me on my email or connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got a QR code up here. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to let me know. Do we have any questions uh, you know, for people? I know I provided a lot of, threw a lot of tools at you, so I know you're organizing your toolbox. Uh, but if anybody has any questions, feel free to, to offer those up now. Yes. Yep. So for people who are engaged in more solitary or solo work um, and not as engaged with directly working with people, and I'm speaking from my own experience, what advice would you give? What What are your goals? So in what context are you talking about? How do I? Yeah. What What are your goals? Okay. So like for me, I, I'm just just in my own workspace and workplace, like a lot of it is solo and on my own and not a lot of but I'm providing resources. I work with the library, and I provide resources for the community, but I don't get to directly interact with people or impact people that I can see. So are, is there any advice for people who feel like they're doing more behind-the-scenes work and how they can be more proactive, I guess? Yeah, well, I think, I think it starts by talking to the people that you serve. So like, who are the students that you're seeing in the library, like having genuine conversations with students, um, one thing that I think is very powerful on campuses is food. So like providing food for students or being like, hey, like I'm, I'm eating lunch at this time at 2 p.m. Like come by to the library to like have a conversation about how to improve X thing. And then it, you might only get two or three students that show up. But from those two or three students, you might get a connection to a faculty member. Then you talk to that faculty member and then you get connected to two more faculty members. And so. Um, we, we engage with people in ways that we don't see as engagement, but you're serving somebody, right? With whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're designing websites remotely, you have clients that you're designing for. And so, being a, and, and so starting conversations with those people about their experiences, about who they're talking to, about the things that they care about, that opens them up to talk, to, to talk about other people that you can then connect with, and that's how that network kind of ex expands in that way. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome, thank you.
Yes, yes. What suggestions do you have for how institutions can empower practitioners and the people who do this type of work, particularly in this university setting? What advice do you have for administrators for how we can support people who do the work? Excellent question. So how do we, um, how do we support faculty and administrators that are doing this work in, in educational institutions? Um, I think that communities of practice are extremely powerful. Like, just getting people to talk, because again, like when you think about the experience of a faculty member, not all of them are like tenderline, research, been there for 15 years, have all of these connections. Like the research says that the majority of people who are teaching classes in colleges today are adjunct faculty. And so this is like the second or third or fourth or fifth thing on their list. And so when they come onto campus, there's not a, con a, there's not a sense of connection that's felt. And so when you create an environment where you're centering faculty, you can say, let's come in and talk about your course. Like, I, I genuinely just want to hear how your course experience is going. And you'll be surprised, like, the new faculty that we get, like, how open they are. Like, they've never had somebody ask about how their teaching is going. Like, some of these faculty are not even trained in teaching or trained in pedagogy. Like, they're, like they're knowledge experts. And so they're asked to teach these courses, which is, Again, the second, third, or fourth thing that they're focused on. But when somebody actually asks them about their teaching or asks them about their work, that means the world to them. And so that is the beginning of empowering people. And then there are faculty members that are organically doing this work. Like, they're, like they are steeped in the inclusive pedagogy, but they're never acknowledged because they're not around other people who are doing it. So just knowing that you're not the only one that's teaching with the lens of inclusivity. You're not the only one that's doing all of these cool things in your courses. That's the start of it. Um, and then another thing, too, um, is incentives, right? And I think that's the one um, that's in a lot of our minds. Like, how do, we, how do we pay this, you know, how do we provide compensation for this work that isn't necessarily financial? And you start with asking the faculty. And one of the things that we learned is that uh, credentialing is really powerful, right? Especially when it comes to tenure promotion. A lot of faculty want to do this full time, like they want to be full time faculty, and so giving them the credential to say, I am a faculty fellow in a particular program, it provides like a name for what they do, and that is a way of acknowledging the work that could propel them to a higher faculty position or allow them to teach an additional course that gives them a little bit more flexibility in their schedule. And so you have to, again, get people talking to each other about the nature of what they do, and then figure out, okay, what are the incentives that you care about and then how can we create those incentives in ways that aren't always financial? So I hope, hope that was helpful. Any other questions? Yes. yes. Have you encountered any uh, pushback to your refusal practices personally? And if so, how do you get with I am really fortunate to work in an environment that is all about refusal practice. I feel like the environment that I work in. So I work in the inclusive pedagogy unit of our teaching and learning center. So all of the initiatives that I get to touch are centered around inclusive pedagogy and the people there are experienced and very intentional about creating a culture of inclusivity so that we can like breathe that out to the faculty that we work with. And so I haven't really, you know, experienced any resistance to those ideas. Um, and like I said, when, when we talk to faculty about it, the main thing is about 
maintaining this academic excellence standard, like maintaining the eliteness of the university through the courses. But when we back it up with research that says that students are actually more productive in their course, they're more generative in their courses, they get higher grades when you value their humanity, then that really starts to change their minds because it's, it's outcomes based, right? And so again, speaking different languages for different audiences seems to, seems to really work. Yep. Earlier you said you live for opposition, so when you have uh, somebody that disagrees, how do you, how, what is your, you know, what do you say when there's confrontation? How do you yeah. do it in a professional manner without getting feathers ruffled? Yeah, yeah, I really lean into well, one, I listen, like I am like an active listener and like I try to take a step back, especially when I do stuff like facilitate panels. Like I didn't say a word to like manage the situation because like I'm a moderator. Like I wanted to center my students. I wanted to allow the students to kind of interact with them. And then also there were like several faculty in the room too that were able to like speak to that particular member. But when I, fe when I face opposition one-on-one, -on -one, I really get into the understanding mode. So if a faculty member is like, man, like my students are disrespecting me, like I don't think this is gonna work. I say, you know, what, what would make you open to this? Like what are some things that would open your eyes to the opportunities to improve your course outcomes? You know, what are you, dis what are you unhappy with? Again, centering like, what, where do you find opportunities to grow in your teaching? What conversations are you having with your dean? Do you feel supported by your dean? How can we help your dean support you to do this work, right? So you just, continue to dig into the experiences of the faculty, like what, what they see as the challenges. Because sometimes we come in with our own challenges and we say, okay, these are the problems that I see. This course is designed really poorly and like you gotta fix this, this, and this, right? They can deviate from that, but if you allow them to present their own challenges, you can then get back to the course design later, right? Like once, once you build the trust in solving the problems that they care about, then you can get back to the bigger issues, right? So hopefully that was helpful. Yeah. When I used to teach many years ago, the, the, the teachers that were valued were those that, that, that their students produced the best results. Um, and, and I just have, in terms of hard sciences, let's say, or engineering or something, I think the students would put up in those days, and I don't know today, but would put up with a lot of abuse, generally speaking, as long as they got the stuff into their hands and they scored well, and they did well, right? Um, I wonder how you approach the hard sciences rather than the soft ones. Uh, with, with the, Georgetown's a good example, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to excel. They want to be the best, right? So, and you want a teacher who will make you be the best. Now, if the teacher is also abusive, well, we put up with it, like we put up with many things in life, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how will that teacher then be able to grow into something that is more? better over time when he's being encouraged because the students are supporting him in his abusive behavior because they're doing well, because they, they work Yeah, so that is a very layered and textured question. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> And you know, I'm, I'm slowly starting to turn into a pedagogy nerd or like a teaching nerd. And so I'm approaching this answer with a teaching and learning perspective, but I think this answer could yield 
potential opportunities and learnings for people who aren't in education, right? And so um, it's all about framing. So one of the framing, because you said like there's a level of elitism and like competitiveness that's kind of baked in to these courses. And it's like, okay, yes, you're getting a good grade in this class, but we want you to be a good practitioner when you graduate. And so we're, po we're pointing to a lot of research that focuses on the importance of problem-centered design and human-centered design and all of these productive frameworks that centers students' post-graduation success. And so even though, like you said, they're putting themselves through suffering in the classroom, that's not gonna help you design the future thing. And so if we want our students to be leaders and not, again, just replicate systems that already exist, we could say, okay, here's what it looks like to be an excellent chemist. And here's the direction that chemistry is going in. And here are black scholars in chemistry that you might have never heard of before that are making strides. And here are the benefits of it. And I want you to be an excellent chemist. So I want to equip you with the things that are counter to our current system because we see the problems in our current system. And so you can graduate and then work towards solving those problems. Again, so there's a couple things I mentioned there. So it's the problem-centered design. There are problems with the field of chemistry that this particular environment that we're learning in is like conducive of. Like we are creating problems in our classrooms that are reproduced in the field. So again, back to the educational survival complex. And then secondly, in order to be a leader, you have to build the skills needed to reject those systems to be in order to be a good chemist. And that's just like the chemistry example, but the framing of, okay, post-graduation success, that's been really powerful for the people in the hard sciences um, to get their, to see their students as more than just students and as future practitioners in the field. And this is what you need to do in order to be a leader in that field, so. All right, I think, let me check my time real quick. How are we doing on time, Clyde? Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate y'all so much. Thank you, thank you. If you want to equip your students with the skills needed to create a positive school culture, then I want to tell you about Self Talks. Self Talks is the student success program that is transforming high school and college students throughout the country. You might be familiar with social emotional learning programs or career readiness curriculum, but what makes Self Talks unique is how it combines content on academic success, equity and inclusion, student leadership, and mental health for students. Students might learn effective study strategies, but what if mental health struggles are stopping them from becoming academically engaged? They might earn leadership opportunities or student employment positions, but what frameworks are they learning to build programs and initiatives that serve all students in the school community? That is why having conversations about how success, equity, leadership, and flourishing intersect is so important. And the research shows that when students are thriving in all of these areas, it leads to personal well-being as well as their professional success after graduation. Self-Talks is fully customizable to your school or district's needs. There's no cookie-cutter content, and every Self-Talks starts with a needs assessment with your leaders to remove your specific barriers to student success. There are no boring lectures, it's PBIS and Castle aligned, and it's informed by the science of teaching and learning, the stuff that actually works. So if you're looking to take your students to new heights this semester, visit jdspeaks.com slash self-talks.